Well, good morning, Westbridge. So glad to be here. Really, it's an honor to be here. I love when I get to come to Westbridge and speak. And uh, Jeremiah is one of my very best friends. We actually went to college together 21 years ago. And, uh, and so we get together probably monthly just to hang out and uh, be together. We love Jeremiah and Cherry. And whenever we hang out with them, here's what's amazing to me. is just this overflowing love that they have for this church. And so I want you to know how blessed you are, how incredibly blessed you are to have pastors that care and love you all so incredibly deeply. And it is an honor for me to be here continuing your summer series. And today I want to talk to you about waiting on God, waiting on God. How many of us like to wait? Anybody that just enjoys waiting for things? Look around. That is amazing. Not one hand in this room is up. Uh, I do not enjoy waiting either. And it reminded me of flying into Billings, Montana two years ago. Uh, anyone ever been to Billings, Montana? Anybody? Okay, a couple people. I'd never been there. And I didn't realize how small of a city and town this was until I boarded my plane in Minneapolis. And there were 33 seats on the plane. There was 11 rows of three. There was one seat on the right, two seat on the left. Instantly when I saw that, I, when I saw that, this is what I thought. Anytime they ever give you a hard time when they weigh your bag and they say, ooh, 51 pounds, that's really going to throw the balance off on the plane. We're going to need to charge you 50 bucks for that. You tell them it's hogwash because you said, I have a friend named Ryan and he was on a plane and there was two thirds of everybody sitting on one side of the plane. There was literally only like eight of us on this plane. I flew into Billings, Montana. I had no idea. It was such a small town, small airport, one concourse. And I was there for a week. And when I was leaving, I'm sitting in the one concourse with just a couple gates. And I'm waiting for my plane to take off. It's about 12, 30 in the afternoon. This is going to take off. And all of a sudden, over the loudspeaker, I hear them say that our flight has been canceled. Which is kind of a bummer. I thought to myself, that's okay. I'll just jump on the next flight. Surely it's probably soon. So I walked up to the counter, only, and she goes, oh, yes, we do have another flight going into Minneapolis, and that leaves at 8.30 p.m. tonight. And I said, come again? Wait, is it what? I have to sit here for the next eight hours. There's got to be another way. Am I going to rent a car and just drive? I mean, what should I do? And so I ended up just sitting in this airport, which, sidebar, side note, one of the really crappy things about this was that the only thing they had was a little gift shop that sold like some candy bars and stuff. And this gift shop was just, it was open whenever they felt like it, honestly. It was just, sometime I'd go there, it would be closed. Other times I went there, it was open. It was just bizarre. All day, it was just open and closed all day. There was no food, nothing. And I had to wait for eight hours. It was terrible just waiting because I'm the type of person that when I'm at the light and it's red, I'm timing for the green light to get going. Is anybody else like that? I mean, none of us like to get to the dentist 10 minutes early because they tell us to, to fill out paperwork, only to have to wait for 30 additional minutes because they're all running behind. How many of you in Costco, you're eyeing the fastest line to get in that line? How many of you are doing that, right? But why is it? Because we don't enjoy waiting at all. And we've been told over and over again, the most important thing we have, that time equals money, that time equals importance, and so we need to maximize it because we only get 24 hours in a day, seven days a week. And here's a quote that I saw recently that I thought was interesting. Tim Fargo says this, you can't make time so those who waste the least achieve the most. You can't make time so those who waste the least achieve the most. And I think there's a lot of that that I might agree with, but what about when it comes to waiting on God? 
What does that look like for us? Is that time wasted? What if God's economy on time is completely different than ours? And what if there is a point to waiting on God? If you're taking notes this morning in your app, the first fill-in is this. That what, what do you do when there is nothing you can do? That's a great question. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Because we've all been there at certain points in our lives. Things that were unresolvable. Tensions that go unsolvable. What do you do when there's no way to change the circumstance? Uh, Maybe it's work, right? You were waiting for so long to get a promotion and someone else got the promotion and now you're in a period of waiting again. Doesn't feel very good. What about in your finances? When things are tight or things unexpected has happened and you wonder, does God see me? Does God see the struggle that we're going through? Or maybe in your marriage, you've been in a season of waiting and you wonder, are we gonna make it? And you've been praying and praying and it doesn't seem like God's been answering those prayer requests. What do you do? Or maybe it's your kids. We all wish we could just make all their choices for them, but we know that's not the case. And what if you've been praying for your kids and it doesn't seem that God is answering? What do you do with that? Or maybe it's your health. Maybe it's an unexpected illness. And doctors don't really have answers. And you're waiting on God to do something. Maybe it's academic or that college is just out of your reach or that degree is just out of your reach. And you wonder if God sees it. Or maybe it's a relationship that you thought was going to work out and it didn't. You thought they were the one and you broke up. And you've been looking out on the horizon And there's no one else in sight. And you're in this period of waiting. And you're wondering, does God see me? Right? Maybe a new reality, a new normal is in front of you that you just don't know what to do with. And you wonder if God is paying attention. When we started our church 12 years ago, we had a couple that helped us that were there at the very, very beginning. And over the years, we became very, very good friends with them. In fact, the husband... Uh, we would have breakfast every other month together, probably be on the phone every other week, just checking in, seeing how life's going. And I'll never forget the day three years ago when his wife called me and said that he was being rushed to the hospital and he had a brain aneurysm. And this is during COVID when his two boys and his wife couldn't even go in and visit him. And so they're distant, they're away from him and a few days go on and he ends up losing his life. 52 years old. And I remember his wife saying, where is God in this? And now I'm looking at a new normal and I'm just supposed to have this waiting period and I don't know what's ahead. Does God see what I'm going through? What do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Well, you actually have a few options. You could actually run and hide. I don't think that's a very good option. You could give up. You could form an addiction to cope with everything in your life. You could isolate yourself from others or from those at church. Right? None of those seem like good options. And maybe even talking with other Christians doesn't seem to help when they say things you know, like, hey, buck up, God's gonna use this for good in your life. Come on, just cheer up. That doesn't feel very good. Or you know what, I know the relationship didn't work out, but you just need to be dating Jesus right now, and I'm sure he has somebody in store for you. 
Or just claim your healing. Just claim your financial blessing. Come on, it's going to work out. Or the friend who's trying to encourage you in your dark spot in life and they're like, hey, I think this is going to encourage you. Actually, I've had like a cramp in my leg and I was going to the mall the other day and God got Can you believe that he would do that for me? And then you start saying bad things under your breath at them, right? I mean, because that's not helpful at all. And people are weird sometimes when you're going through something really difficult because they don't quite know how to respond to it. And the truth is it's very isolating. You can feel alone in these difficult times And these are the lies that we begin to tell ourselves. We say things like this, I'll never be happy again. Right, knowing what I'm walking through, I will never be as happy as when I was first married or when we had our first kid or I remember in college, I was so happy. I will never be that happy again. Or here's the next lie that we believe, that nothing good can come from this. Right, I mean, if I process out All the way to the end, there's no way that anything good could ever come from this. And this last lie, maybe you've thought this, there's no point in continuing. There's no point in continuing the marriage. There's no point in continuing faith. There's no point in continuing whatever it might be. You fill in the blank. Because it's obvious that God... And when we're in a spot where we're waiting... We can oftentimes ask ourselves these questions. Does God know? I mean, is God even aware of what I'm going through? Is God concerned? Does God care? And if we were to be real honest, this morning, every one of us have at one time or another in a dark spot, we've thought this, we've mumbled it. For some of us, we've even believed it. God doesn't care, that maybe he doesn't know. Just this week, I got a text from a couple in our church. A few weeks ago, their 21-year-old daughter wasn't feeling well. She went to the doctor, and so they said, would you be praying? Yes, we prayed. And they just ran tests this week and came back that she has leukemia, 21 years old. And they said, our prayer is that it has not spread to the spine or to the bones and I was just texting with him a couple days ago. He, he said, further tests have been done and the cancer is in her spine, it's in her bones. She's starting chemotherapy immediately. Devastating. Right, I have four kids, I can't imagine. Right? You raise them to 21 and then they're faced with this incredible illness and disease and how heartbreaking that would be for parents. And yet his text was optimistic that we're trusting and believing in God. But it's easy when you are facing really, really tough things in life to wonder, does God care? Does God see me? And this is sometimes what we think, that maybe God is absent. Maybe God is apathetic. Maybe I'm going through this because God is angry at me. Right, for something I've done or somewhere I've been And it sure does feel like it when you're waiting on God to show up, doesn't it? Those things feel very real. Some of you think that God is absent. He's just far away, that maybe it's like, you know, triage in the hospital, that the worst case scenarios get dealt with first, and maybe the worst prayer requests get dealt with first, and then maybe God eventually gets to me. Or maybe some of you think that God is apathetic. I mean, maybe worse, 
than being absent. What if God knows and he just doesn't care? How do you begin to process that? Others of you think that God is angry. And you think, what can I do to jump through the right hoop so that God's happy with me again? What can I do to turn my luck around with God so he'll look on me a favor and solve whatever it is that I'm going through? Right, we'll do anything for God to engage with us, but here's what we discover. is that God is not our puppet. And God cannot be manipulated because he's, well, he's God. And there's certain things that God does that we simply don't understand. And when we're in these periods of waiting, what we need to do is look at the character of God in Scripture. And when you do that, here's what we discover. And this is your next villain. Here's the gospel truth. What you discover as you read Scripture, that God is not absent. He is not apathetic. And he is not angry. That's what we discover, that God is not absent, apathetic, or angry. He's still with us even when it feels like he isn't. But what begins to happen when you've been waiting for God to show up and your patience starts to run out? Because we think, I mean, if I can order something on Amazon and within hours it's at my doorstep, which I don't even know how that happens or what kind of magic that is. I don't even know. Why then does it take God months and even years to respond. And when we're in that period of waiting, if we aren't careful, don't miss this, something shifts in our heart. And because God isn't answering our prayer request the way that we think he should, here's what happens. We become absent and we become apathetic and we become angry. The very things that we were projecting on God, we actually become ourselves because he's not doing what we want him to do. Right? We push him away because he's not doing what we want him to do. We become absent at church. We become absent in our prayer life. We become apathetic in our faith. We become angry at God. God, how could you allow this and bitterness begins to creep into our heart. And what was once maybe a vibrant relationship with God is now stalled at best because we're still waiting. So what do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do? Because we've all had moments like this. We've all had moments, temptation in our lives where we want to push God away because we feel like he doesn't care for us. And yet every single time we're in that spot, we are confronted again and again and again with his love and his grace. And John 3.16 shows us exactly that. And if you've ever watched a football game, you've seen verse John 3.16 in the end zone, right? And I think it goes something like this. For God so loved the rule followers. Isn't that how it begins? Oh, no, it doesn't. For God so loved the Christians. I think that's what it says. No. Oh, for God so loved the Republicans. For God so loved the Democrats. Mm -mm. For God so loved 
the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die for you. And it was settled once and for all that he knows you and he cares about you and he cares about what you are going through. You see your next fill in John penned those words. God so loved the world because they are true. He penned those words because it's true and whether or not you feel close to God or far from God, he sees you and he loves you. And the Bible actually gives us this incredible true story about a man who's feeling maybe what you are feeling if you've ever waited on God and wondered if he cares and wonders if he sees you and what you're going through. And there, this man was somebody that Jesus thought more highly of than anyone else anywhere on earth. And his name was John the Baptist. Now, growing up, I thought Baptist was John's last name. Full transparency. I didn't know he was called John the Baptist because he was baptizing people. He was John the baptizer. And he was preparing the way for Jesus, the Messiah, to begin his earthly ministry. And John was even asked, oh, are you the Messiah? And he'd say, no, no, no. I mean, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of the guy who's coming next. And one day John is baptizing people in the river because that's what he does. He's John the Baptist, baptizer, baptizing people in the river. And he looks up on the shore and there stands Jesus. And John points from the water and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we fast forward a little bit when Jesus is now teaching in Galilee and some men approach him and they're like, hey, Jesus, can we just get a few minutes of your time Real quick, just kind of sidebar, if we could come over here. Jesus, uh, we are actually a group of men. We are John's disciples. So we actually follow you through John. I mean, it's pretty cool. And we've learned so much from him. And John actually sent us to ask you a question. And we're supposed to take your answer and go back to John and tell him what you said. Jesus is like, all right, well, that's fine. I mean, what's your question? Here's what John wants to know, Jesus. Are you really the Messiah, the one God sent to us that we've been waiting on? Jesus, are you, are you really the Son of God? And I'm sure Jesus is like, wait, time, time on. Didn't John just point at me in the river and be like, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? What in the world is going on with John? Why would he ask such a question? And maybe even a better question is, why isn't John there himself? I mean, if John wants this answer so bad, why doesn't he go to where Jesus is and simply ask him this question? And the reason that John couldn't ask him in person is because John was sitting in prison. And you might ask, well, how did John get in prison? Let me give you the recap. If you remember King Herod from the Christmas story, you remember that? He had all the babies slaughtered. Well, King Herod had a son. His name was Herod also, Herod Philip. And Herod Philip married his niece, Herodias. So niece marries uncle. I know, that's a little screwed up, right? Well, while, one day, while, while Herod Philip is gone on a trip, 
she actually has an affair with Philip's brother, who's also named Herod. And I think there was just a lack of names back in the first century. So they're all named Herod, but you just got to follow me with this. So Herod Philip is gone, and she has an affair with her other uncle. And so when her husband comes back, she decides to divorce him and leave him. And then she ends up with his brother Herod. She trades one uncle for the other uncle, right? I get it. It's a little crazy. Well, John the Baptist, right, seeing this big scandal, used it as an opportunity to teach on sin. And so he kept using Herodias and King Herod as an example of sin. And he was shouting it from the rooftops, telling everybody what they had done and why this is sin before God, and and on and on. Well, as you can imagine, Herodias did not like this. She eventually had John arrested, and now John is sitting in prison. And while John is sitting in a prison far away, he begins to have doubt. Because he's waiting for God to do something for him. He's waiting for his friend Jesus to show up and do something on his behalf. And when I say prison, I don't want you to think like prison like we know. I'm talking about a hole in the ground done where you don't live unless friends and family bring you something to eat. You are living in your own feces. You are living in darkness. You are living with the rats. That is where John is sitting, waiting on God to do something on his behalf. And he's wondering, does God care? Does God even know what's going on? Does God even see my situation? And why hasn't Jesus saved me yet? What could he be waiting for? Now, let me hit rewind on this, and I want to go back and show you the kind of affection that Jesus had for John before all of this took place. Matthew eleven eleven. this is what Jesus said about John. He said, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than who? John the Baptist. There's no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says that John is the greatest person on the planet. But now after waiting in prison, John isn't so sure about what he thinks about Jesus. Why would Jesus be waiting so long to do something? Why would John have these kind of doubts about whether or not he really was the Messiah, really was the Son of God? Because he seemed so convinced before, but now John isn't so sure. Why is that? Well, let me show you why John is feeling this way. Matthew 4.12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, what do you think Jesus did next? What do you think he did? Now, before we see what Jesus did, let me say something. If I was making up this whole story and I was an author and I was in the first century and I was writing what would be scripture, I would definitely not put this next part in there. Definitely wouldn't do it because it's about to make Jesus look bad. And if I'm making this whole story up, I want Jesus to look wonderful. 
And it's one of the reasons that I love and trust scripture so much. Because of the rawness, the realness, and how at times they paint themselves in negative light. You see, the only reason what we're about to read is in the Bible is because it's what actually happened. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all reliable witnesses of what happened during the life of Jesus. So what did Jesus do? When, when Jesus heard that John was in prison, I mean, for sure he went and broke him out of prison, right? He's like, come on, guys, let's go get John. Busted down the walls, let's go. I mean, Jesus for sure at least went to visit him. Right, say, ah, John, I'm so sorry you're in this situation. I mean, we're working through the courts. We're gonna try to get you out of here. I mean, I mean, at the very least, Jesus had to have sent a care package, right? Like Slim Jim, some Pop-Tarts. I mean, just to get them through. For sure, Jesus would do something like that. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went to Capernaum. And you don't realize how significant this is until you look at a map and realize that Jesus went the opposite direction of where John was. Jesus heard that his friend John was in prison and he withdrew. And after John is sitting in prison for a year and a half with no trial, sitting in this dungeon, John finally sends people to ask Jesus this all-important question to try to quiet all of his doubts, wondering, does God see me? Does God know? Is God angry? Is God apathetic? And he finally gets his disciples who visited him and said, will you please just go ask him this question? Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? And maybe you've asked that question. Maybe you say, God, are you really real? Do you really see what's going on in me and in my situation? And Jesus responded to them and said, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen, that the blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, news is being preached to the poor. In other words, go back and tell John all the things I'm doing for everyone else, but not for him. And in dark periods of our lives, when we feel like we've been waiting on God, we've thought the exact same thing, haven't we? It seems like God is doing it for everyone else but me. It seems like God is answering other people's prayers, but not mine. That God is helping those people out, but he's not helping me. That God is healing those people, but he hasn't healed me. It's how we feel if we're honest. It seems like God is so busy helping other people find parking spots, apparently. And he has no time to show up in my situation when there's nothing I can do. And here's what this story tells us that I think is pretty amazing. Your next fill-in. That God can know you and love you 
while you wait. That God can know you and love you while you're waiting in your current situation. And we don't always know why God makes us wait. Why there's some prayer requests he answers right away and others that don't. And I don't think we'll know all the answers until we're on the other side of eternity. And maybe when we get to heaven, it will be like an instant download and we'll just know everything. Because scripture tells us that we will know as we've been known. And maybe we'll see every puzzle piece come together and why God did that and why he didn't do that and why he waited there and why we were struggling there. God, we'll see it all. But until then, what we hear from this story is that God can know us and love us in spite of our waiting. And just as these disciples were leaving to go tell John, Jesus stopped them to tell them one last thing. And this is what he would say to John and this is what he would say to us today. If you find yourself in a similar place of waiting, this is what Jesus said. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is the person who doesn't stumble in their faith, whether I answer the prayer requests or I don't, whether I do or don't do certain things, even when I don't seem to be active. Blessed, your next feeling, blessed is the person who keeps trusting when nothing is happening. Blessed is the person who keeps trusting and believing when nothing is happening. And so here's what we can't do. We can't interpret God's silence as absence. We can't confuse God's apparent absence for apathy. Your unanswered prayer is not evidence of God's lack of love for you. He loves you and he sees you. Your next feeling, there will be times in your life that God seemed distant and silent, but he is neither. There will be times in your life when it feels like God is distant or silent, but he's neither. And if you find yourself in this place of waiting and wondering and doubt creeping in, I want you to know that you are in the same company with some of the greatest people that Jesus ever knew and loved. Blessed is he or she who does not lose their faith on account of me, on what I am doing or what I am not doing. Instead, through our faith, we can change our mindset by holding on to the character of God. Instead of saying, I'll never be happy again, we can say, I can be happy again. I can be. I know that God is something good on the other side, right? That God's working on my behalf, that nothing good can come from this, from something good can come from this. That God loves me and he sees me and he knows me and he's working out things on my behalf. There's no point to continuing to there is purpose in this pain. Joy, hope, and purpose can be restored. God doesn't always answer the way that we think he should, 
or the way we want him to, but he always knows and he always cares and he's always involved. When my wife and I had our first child almost 17 years ago now, when my wife was pregnant, some of our very best friends at the time were also pregnant. And we were so excited to take this journey together. And about 20 weeks in, our friend lost her baby. And it was heartbreaking and it was devastating. And my wife carried our child to term, healthy baby boy. And I'm sure it was a reminder to them of their brokenness and hurt and wondering, God, do you see us? Well, 14 months later, my wife was pregnant again. Funny how that works. And, and here, you know, pretty close together. And our friends were also pregnant. And we thought, yes, this has been the answer to our prayers. And halfway through that pregnancy, she lost the second baby. And I'll never forget the day driving to their house after we received the news. Tears streaming down our faces. And I'm a pastor for crying out loud and I felt like I had nothing to say. I had nothing to say that was gonna help them. I had nothing to say that was gonna relieve their pain. And we just hugged them. And we cried with them. And it would have been so easy for them to say, God doesn't care. And God doesn't see us. And I'm giving up. We're giving up on faith. We're giving up on church. We're giving up. Maybe God does it for other people, but he doesn't do it for us. And their faith remains strong. And it was a couple years after that that she was pregnant again, and this time with twins. And she had a perfect, healthy pregnancy and brought them into this world. And after that, had two more kids. Why does God make us wait? Why does it seem like at times he's absent or he doesn't listen, isn't listening? I don't have the answer to all of that. But I do know that every one of us are going to be tempted at times in our lives where we're waiting for God to do something. A temptation to hit the eject button and just leave faith. Leave church, give up on God. And Jesus says, blessed is the person who keeps persevering in faith even when they don't understand what I'm doing. And that's my hope for us today. And that's what this last verse talks about, Psalm 27, 14. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. I love how sandwiched in between two commands to wait patiently is this statement that is so needed at times. Be brave and courageous. Be brave and courageous in your faith. Be brave and courageous in your relationship with Jesus to know that he has not forgotten about you. And he sees you and he loves you. And he proved it by giving his life for you and being raised from the dead three days later.
So today, let's make the decision to be brave and courageous. That even in our time of waiting, knowing that God loves us and he's moving on our behalf. Would you pray with me? Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you've never began a relationship with God, a true one. Maybe you've been around religion for 20 years. But you've just been going through the motions or maybe you're here exploring faith maybe for the first time and you haven't yet truly put your faith, all of your trust in Jesus. And you want to do that this morning. If that's you, just to say a simple prayer with me, to repeat this quietly right where you're at, just say, dear Jesus, today I decide to give my life to you. Thank you for loving me just as I am. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for dying for me. I receive you as the leader of my life from this day forward. And Heavenly Father, for the rest of us, especially those who find themselves in a period of waiting, would you help us by your spirit to strengthen our faith, to be brave and courageous, even in the times that we feel like giving up. For the person who's feeling heartache today, so many unanswered questions, I pray that they would sense your presence through it all. That we would learn again, be reminded again of how much you love us and how much you care for us knowing that you're working all things for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.